0: Welcome to episode 175 of The Book Cougars, Two Middle-Aged Women on the Hunt for a Good Read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. We want to congratulate Jerry in Texas. She won a copy of our current read-along, Parnassus on Wheels by Christopher Morley. Congrats. Yeah, we're happy for you, Jerry. We hope you read
1: along. Yeah, I hope you enjoy it. And that also has The Haunted Bookshop as well, so enjoy those are the copies of the book that we were
0: given by dover publishing Mm
1: -hmm. and they gave
0: us one to share so thank you to dover we also want to thank anna from england yeah anna gave us a lovely donation via paypal which is another way if you don't want to be part of the patreon community you can donate directly via paypal email us at bookcougars at gmail.com with questions I have a funny story. I want to tell you, we receive lovely emails from our listeners. It's so nice. Always feel free to email us. And we got this email from Joan talking about a book that Chris talked about on episode five, way back in the yonder days of of the book cougars. It was a book called stone by stone, the magnificent history in New England stone walls by Robert Thorson. And I laughed so hard when I got this email. It was a wonderful email. Joan heard this episode and was very excited because she gives a book to her son-in-law's father, which I think is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And she heard Chris talking about this book and knew it was going to be the perfect book. And indeed, she tells us the story of gifting the book to him and he loved it. And he had even studied with the author. He'd
1: taken some workshops with him.
0: Yes. And so we loved hearing about this. What's funny and why it makes me giggle is because that book, Stone by Stone, goes down kind of in cougar lore as a book that Chris, you know, we were new to the podcasting
1: game. <laughs> she talked about it long enough for my eyes to glaze over. Oh my gosh. Bit. It was so funny. Because, okay, reminder too, we're both Midwest transplants. And I read the book shortly after moving here, was so excited to read about these New England stone walls and why New England has so many stones and how these walls were made initially and why and the skill of making them without mortar and all this stuff. And I was just going on and on and on and I couldn't help myself. And I did notice Emily was seriously starting to wilt. And I was like, (laughs) oh, I need to kind of wrap this up, you know. And then when I was editing the episode, I was like, oh, dear God, Chris, no wonder Emily was starting to, you know, (laughs) fade, because I was starting to fade. Just listen. to So yeah, that has to go down. I mean, we still joke about it. Sometimes we joke about it frequently. And so when I got the email,
0: I read it on my phone, which is always a bad idea for me. I thought I was forwarding it to Chris, but accidentally responded to Joan and said, this is wonderful and hilarious. <laughs> yeah. And then when I realized I had sent it to Joan, I was like, Oh, gosh, I now I have to explain to her why this is hilarious. So, anyway, thank you, Joan. Thanks, Joan, for the memory of that book. Now, we have to say we talked about it twice. We talked about it on episode five and episode 145, which is when we celebrated five years. Yes.
1: Yeah, so, we did a five year anniversary special where we talked about what our top 10 of recent decades. And I, th- I don't know if I had five nonfiction and five fiction. So, it came up again. Yeah. And as much as we joke about it, it's a book I think about all the time, because I look at Stonewalls every day here in Connecticut. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that author came up again when we were talking with Carrie Arsenal, author of Milltown. She actually has read the book and knows the author. So we feel like he's kind of been with us right from along the our, journey, <laughs> our, our journey here. So Stone by Stone, it's a great book if you're interested in stone walls. Yes, Joan, thank you for giving Chris yet another reason to talk about stones
0: and walls. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, reach out to us, tell us your book stories. We love to hear them. So Emily, what are you currently reading? Well, I talked about one of my goals this year is to read more Maggie O'Farrell. So I've stepped right in, I'm doubling down. And my current read is I Am, I Am, I Am, 17 Brushes with Death. This is her only memoir and work of nonfiction. And I'm listening to it on audio and reading the e-version. And this is literally about her 17 times coming near death. And so far, I've only read where she's hiking up in a mountain, very remote. She's by herself. And she comes across a gentleman that just doesn't seem right. And she knows she has to get out of the situation and it's kind of scary and then goes to report it to the police and they don't really take it seriously. And then she ends up reading about him or hearing about him later. He did do something terrible. So they're kind of brushes with death that I wasn't quite sure what she meant by that. So the first one was really interesting
1: and they're written like essays, Mm -hmm. essentially. So I'm enjoying it. Interesting. Like, what a concept. Like, I wonder how she came up with the idea of like, I think I'll write about the times I almost died. Yeah,
0: I mean, maybe because there's been so many.
1: I I know. Seventeen's a lot.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And she does not narrate the audio. I'm enjoying the narrator. I'm trying to think if there's been a time when I've listened to a memoir that hasn't been narrated by its author so it's kind of interesting.
1: It is interesting. Have I listened to any recently that the writer didn't narrate? I don't know.
0: I mean, it might be that I just choose to, if I see that the writer is narrating, I'm like, oh, that sounds really compelling because then they can tell me their story.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And I always do the, the little free preview mm-hmm. before I download an audiobook because if the voice isn't right, yeah, I will just move along. So the book I'm currently reading is the book by Amaranth Borsik. I talked about this one before. I'll be reading it throughout the semester. But I wanted to share with everyone a stunning find or a stunning piece of knowledge. And it is about the first named writer in the history of world literature. Her name was Enheduanna. I had never heard of her. Mm -mm. She was an ancient Sumerian princess and high priestess. And she wrote poems. She also wrote you know, something along the lines of like a memoir, a little bit autobiographical pieces. And I had never heard of her. And I posted about her on my Instagram account. And did anyone say they knew about her? I don't think anyone did. My friend and former professor Sherry Harris wrote, how did I not know about her? And I thought, okay, Sherry, who knows everything about women writers, if she didn't know about her, I didn't feel quite so bad. right? You know, (laughs) (laughs) it just made me wonder about this. So. Enhidwana lived 3400 to 2000 BCE, a long time ago. The Morgan Library has an exhibit on her right now. So, yeah, because I read that about her and I was like, what, I have to Google her and find out more. So the Morgan currently has an exhibit about her in person and also online. Check it out. We'll put a link in the show notes, of course. And then through that exhibit, I discovered the scholar Sophus Hella. He is a Danish scholar. He had done a translation of Gilgamesh into both English and Dutch. And Gilgamesh is another ancient story. Like it was presented to me when I was a young college student as one of the earliest texts. It's an epic written in poetry. So he translated that. But now he's also putting out the first ever translated edition of Enhidwana's work. Mm. So I'm super excited about this. I found a couple of videos with him online, very engaging conversation about what they know about her. They don't know a ton about her specifically, but they have things like her hairdressers items that they found in a grave, things like that. So fascinating. And to know that she was the first named author and that she hasn't hit like the English departments yet is really curious. Yeah. So when I was thinking about Gilgamesh, I had read Gilgamesh in an anthropology course when we are talking about archaeological finds and cuneiform tablets and things like that. So it just made me, again, wonder about those differences in academic departments and how they're siloed off against each other Mm -hmm. when these are all stories of humanity and authorship and the history of printing. I'm learning a lot of really fantastic stuff in this History of the Book class. Very cool. Yeah, some more to come on that. That was the book by Amaranth Borsick, or more specifically, talking about Hedwana, the first named author in world literature. We will put links in the show notes. This episode is sponsored by... A Castle in Brooklyn is Shirley Rusick
0: Wachtel's debut novel, a moving and heartfelt immigration story of one man's dream to have a family and build a home in America a place where anything is possible. The book explores three main themes, the importance of following one's dreams, the enduring nature of family and friendship, and the idea that home is a reflection of the lives within its four walls. Our buddy, Rachel Barenbaum, author of Atomic Anna, calls the novel Magnificent. The book is available now. Check the show notes for links.
1: So Emily, what have you just read? Well, I have had a cookbook
0: in my little paws for months. Literally, I can no longer renew it at the library. (laughs) I'll have to take it back when we're done recording. I could check it out for you. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) It is called Cooking with Mushrooms, a Fungi Lover's Guide to the World's Most Versatile, Flavorful, Health-Boosting Ingredients. Part of why I got this out is because the author, Andrea Gentle, is a very well known food photographer. So I was like, this book is just, if nothing else, going to be stunning to look at. And it's true. The pictures are beautiful. But part of the reason I've had it for so long is it's a little intimidating. I have a little bit of a fear of mushrooms. (laughs) I'd like to cook with them more. Um, And stores are carrying beautiful mushrooms now. I have definitely more of a fear of people who go out and harvest. I know there are people who know what they're doing. It still freaks me out. So I found out that Bishop's, which is one of our local grocery stores, has a great selection. So I did choose one of the easier, and I'm saying that in air quotes, recipes in here, which is a ragu, and I made it and it was delicious. And I put three different kinds of mushrooms in it. So I was pretty proud of myself. (laughs) So if you're looking for something that's really beautiful to look at, if you want to learn how to use mushrooms in a way to add flavor, and to eat less meat, I would say this is a good cookbook for you. She also just tackles some of the myths of mushrooms. Like one of the questions is, do you wash them or don't you wash them? So she talks about that. I like to get the dirt off my mushrooms. Some people don't think you need to do that. Interesting. You just kind of brush them a little bit. She actually recommends having a little toothbrush in your kitchen cupboard. That is your mushroom toothbrush. And you can just kind of like wisp off the little pieces of dirt. Yeah. And some of it depends on if you're getting your mushrooms at the local farmer's market or if you're getting them at the grocery store. They can be more, quote, dirty. If you get them from the farmer's market, you might want to clean (laughs) off the dirt. It's a beautiful cookbook. I was showing Chris before we mic'd up that it's really light weight.
1: Yeah, because cookbooks can be so friggin heavy.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that one that Chris talked about, the wok, you had to hold it with both hands. I'm currently holding this one and kind of flailing it around with one hand. It's super light, partly because it's a little bit smaller in size. But I think they just used a lighter, the covers maybe lighter,
1: and the paper looks kind of almost like... It's regular, yeah, yeah it's regular like paper, paper, not the glossy paper yeah. that you so often find in cookbooks that make them very heavy. Yeah, yeah. so that's Cooking with Mushrooms by Andrea Gentle. Mushrooms, gosh, I remember when the only mushrooms you could buy were in cans. Yes,
0: <laughs> yeah, talk about they were a little bit wet. Yes. <laughs> so... <laughs>
1: Yeah. Although I do like mushrooms in general. Just yeah. So I finished Geraldine Brooks's People of the Book. I love this book so much. It's one that I have wanted to read for a very long time. I'm so glad I finally did. You know, it's one of those right book at the right time kind of situations. Because it is about a woman named Hannah Heath, who is an Australian rare book conservator. And she's called to come and assess this ancient Haggadah in Sarajevo, just at the end of the Bosnian War. The book shows up again. They were worried that it had been destroyed. But it is the earliest known example of a Hebrew text that had been illuminated in that tradition of illuminating texts, because in the faith, you weren't supposed to do representations of God or scenes from the Bible. So she goes, to Sarajevo, and starts examining this book. There's also a love interest that happens, but as she's working on the book, she finds different things in the book and on the book, which then lead to Geraldine Brooks's amazing curiosity and ability to take the reader back in time to find out, how did that happen? Was that a blotch of red wine? Where did it happen? How did it happen? And it's just such an incredibly imaginative book in that way. It's based loosely on a true story. But I wanted to read a couple things that I I thought were kind of very interesting. I mean, really read the whole book. I highly recommend it. And this is our year about books about books. And what a coincidence. I just wanted to read this part here. This is about Hannah's work. So she's talking about the difference between like taking a manuscript back to what it first looked like versus conserving it and conserving its history. So she says, to restore a book to the way it was when it was made is to lack respect for its history. I think you have to accept a book as you receive it from past generations. And to a certain extent, damage and wear reflect that history. The way I see it, my job is to make it stable enough to allow safe handling and study repairing only what is absolutely necessary. And that is a big argument within archives and rare book management. I think the overall vibe these days is to conserve the book and to not erase its history. And even reading things more recently about book collectors, there have been cases where sheets of book paper have been chemically stripped to make them look pristine and new but then sometimes collectors don't want that anymore because it has devalued its worth as a historical object. So interesting. Yeah, it really yeah. is. I mean, just the, the different aesthetic values throughout humanity mm-hmm. and what people value. This next one I'm reading specifically for Emily and New Englanders. And I apologize to people of a certain state I hate driving in Boston. It's the traffic that drives me spare and the absolute terrible manners of the motorists. Other New Englanders refer to Massachusetts drivers as mass holes. <laughs> That's very true, which I didn't know until I moved here. Yes, yes. <laughs> but then she goes on and just gives you a sense of the character. So she says, but there's a whole other reason not to drive there, the tunnels. It's really hard to avoid them. You're always being one-wayed and no-left-turned into their gaping maw. In general, I don't have anything against tunnels. My cowardice usually doesn't extend that far. I don't have any trouble with the Sydney Harbor Tunnel, for instance. It's bright down there, clean and shiny, confidence-inspiring. But when you go into a Boston Tunnel, they're creepy. They're dim, and the tiles are leak-stained, as if Boston Harbor is oozing its way through flaws in substandard concrete that some Irish mafia conned the city into buying. They look like they're going to crack open any minute, like something in a Spielberg movie, and the last thing you hear will be the roar of the freezing water. My imagination can't handle it. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's so creepy. (laughs) Isn't that creepy, but it's so true. Yes, yes. (laughs) The character also has a challenging relationship with her mother, who is a very high-powered doctor. And they connect in Boston. I don't want to give too many spoilers. But one thing, she's watching her mom give this presentation. And she's, you know, always impressed by her mom and her complete control of her data and responding to things. And she says, but woe to anyone who asks something half-baked or questioned her conclusions. She would fix them with this charming smile. But you could hear the chainsaw rubbing. (laughs) 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 Without a hint of anger or arrogance in her voice, she'd dismember them. I really couldn't bear to watch her do it to students. But this room full of blokes was another matter. I just liked some of those things and wanted to share them with listeners to get a sense of the flavor for the book. But it covers the time span from 1480 to 1996. It's really twisty and turny. And so many wonderful surprises in this book. Wow! It was more gripping than I thought it would be. Yeah, I mean, I know when it came out, it was very popular. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably why I resisted it, because I I have that little (laughs) stubborn streak, you know, I'm not going to read something that's popular. So you've read this? I have not. No, I've heard
0: so much about it. And when we read March, during our Summer of Little Women, I was looking at her list, and she lives on Martha's Vineyard. And so when you go to the bookstore in Edgerton, they always have a beautiful display of her books. And that's the bookstore when I asked to take a picture, because it was the summer of Little Women, you know, and they wouldn't let me. Right.
1: Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, highly recommend this book. And I have the newer edition that they put out, I guess, to match Horse. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was probably just Time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Lovely. People of the Book by Geraldine Brooks. Highly recommend.
0: I mean, it's interesting because they've also made those covers much more bright and friendly
1: because the other one was kind of dark and had gold
0: highlights, I think, or something. Yeah, one
1: of the first things that triggers a search back into history is the finding of a wing of a butterfly wing. So the first cover of the book had a drawing of a wing, but it was very dark. And you didn't know what it was at first, I Mm -hmm. think was the thing. So it made you kind of look at it a little bit closer. But this book, it's a bright orange and a deeper orange and purple. So yeah, they're
0: very friendly, these yeah. new covers. Yeah. Happy, kind of.
1: <laughs> yeah, completely. Love this book. I will be keeping it, but you can borrow it if you like. Okay. I finished This Must Be the Place by Maggie
0: O'Farrell. This is my second novel of hers. It was published in 2016. This was her second book that she published, and it's told from multiple character points of view and jumps around in time, long distances of time, and starts in 2010 in Donegal, Ireland, with the main character, Daniel Sullivan. He's driving down the road and sees a boy on the side of the road that catches his attention. He starts to talk to him, and it ends up completely changing his life because he follows the little boy home and meets his mother And I don't want to give any spoilers, but that is another main character. Her name is Colette, who is a movie star that walked off the set and disappeared. And no one could ever find her again. Mm. And she's a main character in the book as well. Daniel is the focus, but the points of view are from his lovers, his children, friends in his story, a wife, and Maggie O'Farrell's not afraid to introduce characters points in the story, like really late in the story that just have a conversation with the main character and completely change the course of his life. It's very interesting. I'm not sure I've read a book like that. The only complaint I will have is, and this is partly my fault, I stopped reading it in the middle to read out of character because we were going to have a conversation with Jenna. And so when I got back to this book, I was like, oh, this is a bad book to do that with because there's so many different characters. And I was a little lost in the story. And the contents, it's a long book. And so the contents are great because it has the chapters and the chapters have really fun chapter headings, which I always like. But then they also under the title, it'll say the character's name, where they are and the date. But it doesn't have that in the contents. Oh. So I'm just having a little complaint. It would have been helpful for my brain if it had the title of the chapter and then said who the character was and the date. Totally, You know, just as a little point of reference. And I don't know how it would be handled on audio. I'm kind of curious about that. Like, it was very helpful for me to be able to go back and forth and flip to the different chapters and all of that. There's also a whole section of the movie star's memorabilia that someone is selling because she's disappeared. So there's like a scarf, or a postcard that she wrote. And so that too on audio, I think would be complicated. Mm -hmm. So I'm just saying to folks, I'm not sure that I would recommend this as an audiobook. But once I got back to it and figured out what I was doing again, I really enjoyed it. It's a dense book. It's a complicated story. The general themes are of loss, love, parenthood, grief. Coming of age on multiple levels, and also how we come of age over and over. You know, we have different chapters in our life, and the main character Daniel had a lot of chapters. <laughs> so, again, it's called This Must Be the Place by Maggie O'Farrell. I'm really glad that I read one of her novels that's not historical fiction because I did start with her with Hamnet. So, highly recommend.
1: Nice.
0: Glad to be on a Maggie O'Farrell a thon.
1: Yeah. So, how many <laughs> have you read of hers now?
0: So I've read two, completed two, and then I'm reading I Am, I Am, I Am. All right, Yeah, lots to go. Mm. I'm not sure that I will get through them this year, but yeah. I'm definitely going to pepper my reading throughout the year with her. Awesome.
1: I look forward to hearing more. Well, the other book that I finished is End Papers by Jennifer Savern Kelly. This book just came out. I appreciate the advanced copy that Algonquin sent us, and – I love this book. It's another book about another bookwoman. Her name is Dawn Levitt. It's set in 2003. So shortly after 9-11, New York City is still in recovery from what happened. Dawn is a New Yorker, but she was away at college and is now back. And she's working as a bookbinder at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, repairing books that have been damaged. And she's an artist, but she hasn't been creating anything for a while now. And the book is kind of an exploration of why. And I don't want to give any spoilers. She is in a relationship she's beginning to have some challenges with. Her boss sends her to repair this particular book and In the binding, she finds a cover of an old lesbian pulp novel that somebody stuck in there. And on the back of it is written a love letter, basically. It's written in German. She can understand the beginning and the end, but she has her best friend translate it for her. So she finds out it's a love letter. So this sends her into looking at publishing history in America to track down where this came from, who could have written it, So there's that connection between queerness in the past and present day. So you get the history of the Cold War, the Lavender Scare, when gay and lesbian people were persecuted, and that's related to Nazi Germany, which is connected to the history of publishing and bookbinding. It's one of those stories that has so many different avenues in it, but it feels really tight while you're reading it. There is some gay bashing scenes in it, just content warning for that. I'm really sensitive to that. I mean, there's some really big repercussions. It's not just kind of like this happened and then we all move on kind of situation. Also involved is a lot of street art, New York City street art, which is really great. Dawn finds a lot of inspiration in that. Yeah, I'm trying to think of like, what can I say that wouldn't be spoilerish? Because I really don't want to spoil this novel. So I think that might be all that I really say about it other than it's a really great look at people struggling with their sexual identity, their creative process. And it's a bit of a growing up novel, you know, talk about those cycles of change and everything. Highly recommend it. End Papers by Jennifer Savern Kelly. Very cool. Out now. You know, that this
0: is a total sidebar, but that piece of art that I have hanging in my house in my kitchen that's Einstein holding a sign that says love is the answer. We were on a Biblio adventure in New York, and I snapped a picture of that mural on the side of a New York City building, and then I had it put on canvas. That's awesome! I yeah. wish I knew who the artist was, because I love it. Well, it's,
1: it's, yeah, and it's really cool in this book, because you know a lot of artists will tag mm-hmm. their work, and the character knows somebody who has done this particular piece of work, I mean, I find that fascinating, too. Mm -hmm. And I know that graffiti, studying graffiti, there's a professor at Simmons, the university I attend, who studies that. Mm. And when you're studying it in real life, it's constantly changing Mm -hmm. because other artists come and they might add on or even cover up. So Mm. a wonderful book. And I should say something about the author. She is herself a bookbinder. She works in production as an editor at Cornell And this is her debut novel. They've also published some short fiction as well. So I look forward to reading more because this is a great story. I've read Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club by
0: J. Ryan Stradell. This book comes out on April 18th. You might recognize his name. He also wrote Kitchens of the Great Midwest, Mm. which was his debut. And then The Lager Queen of Minnesota which is a book I picked up when we were at that Friends of the Library bookstore up in New Hampshire. We went to that beautiful library. Yeah. And they had an entire house that was the Friends of the Library bookstore. And I came out with an armful, including that one. I have not gotten to that one. I read Kitchens of the Great Midwest, loved it. When I saw that he had this book out and I read about it, I started reading it right away because I got an ARC. It's very Midwestern as all of his books are. It takes place in Minnesota. Mariel and Ned Prager both have the restaurant business running through their veins. Mariel's family owned a supper club up in like the lakes in Minnesota. And Ned's family owned a chain of kind of bad diners, (laughs) like fast food diners. And um, they were very well known and they fall in love and get married. And he ends up, well, actually, I don't want to spoil that. There's so many things one could spoil in this story. They have a loss, a pretty tragic loss that comes to their family that causes them to have a lot of change in both their work life and where they're living. And they end up moving back up north and become a big part of this supper club up there there was a lot of tenderness around the loss. I'm being very cagey, because I don't want to spoil anything. Also about family obligation. I've worked with people who have that baggage of family business hanging over them. I mean, it can be wonderful. And it can be a hardship. In this case, it's kind of a little bit of both. I really can't say enough about this book. I tore through it. It's just a lovely, light, easy read. And then I was pleased to get on Goodreads when I was reporting that I had finished reading it and Roxanne Gay posted five stars and she said, perfect book. (laughs) And I thought, wow, that is high praise. (laughs) So I kind of feel the same way. There was nothing I didn't like about it. It was a beautiful book. Again, it's called Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club. J. Ryan Stradell out April 18th, but he does have these other two in his backlist. And, you know, I was really tempted to close this one and scurried over to the bookshelf and picked up The Lager Queen of Minnesota. And then I was like, don't do it. Yeah. You know, you might ruin the reading experience having just loved this one. So started reading something else, but we'll definitely go back.
1: Nice. Yeah. You know, after I read End Papers, I saw on Goodreads that Jenny Colvin had marked it as to read. Aww. And I thought, well, Jenny, it was really good. Mm-hmm. So if she's yeah. up there in the big bookstore in the sky, it's just, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think about her quite often as
0: Jenny Colvin, who was a friend and a fellow podcaster from reading envy.
1: We did a couple joint read alongs with her and um, she died way too young and we miss her. So check out her podcast. The episodes are still up there. A lot of fantastic content. The last book I read, it is Alfred A. Knopf quarter century. This was a book that came out in 1940 and the cover, it says 1915 to 1940. I have the 1940 edition here in my hands. I, bought it because Cather wrote an essay in this book. It was put together by a bunch of his friends in honor of his first 25 years in business. So that is why I bought it, because of the Cather connection, and this was a good price. (laughs) And it was also from a rare book dealer in Connecticut, which was cool, so I got to just go and pick it up instead of having it be mailed and having it get wet in the mailbox and whatnot. But then I ended up reading the whole thing. It's pretty short. The essays are, you know, like three, four, five pages. And I really started falling in love a little bit with Alfred, which of course, you know, this is a book celebrating him (laughs) by his friend. So of course, you know, the intention is that you like him. But what I thought was interesting is that Blanche, his wife, they started the business together together. But she has often been left out of the story. And Cather is the one person who really names her and talks about that she is half of the team. Although Thomas Mann does mention her by name too. He's also written an essay he was published by them. And then another writer mentions his wife, but not by name. So I thought that was really telling in a book that's a collection of essays by men who were all part of The book table, which was this group that Alfred put together to come together once a month to talk about the book industry. He was the publisher, a librarian, a bookseller, a bookbinder, just to kind of have that brain space to talk about the book industry. And supposedly, Blanche Knopf wasn't allowed to attend, she wasn't allowed to be a member. But then Cather wrote a, like, supposedly the women weren't allowed, but then Cather has an essay in here. So, was Cather a member? Or did she just write an essay because they asked her to because she was a cather? <laughs> um, but it does say at the very end that it talks about the making of this book for Alfred and his friends as a tribute of affection and congratulation from his fellow members of the book table.
0: Mm. That so, implies that she is,
1: yeah, yeah. doesn't it? Or so, was I should say right. So I really enjoyed this little book, and I, I did kind of kind of prompt me to to want to learn more and and read more about them and that time period in history, which is so surprising to me because when I first started getting into like academic study, I was drawn to medieval early Anglo-Saxon writing, like the older the better, you know. I studied Old English and all that. But now I'm really interested in 20th century. It's weird how that happens, because I used to think when I was really into the 19th century, like, ew, why would somebody be interested in (laughs) that? But then Willa Cather was this weird blip for me. Good book. If you're interested in literary history, it might be something you'd want to check out. Alfred A. Knopf, Quarter Century. Very cool. Well,
0: after I finished Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club, I decided... I needed to just pick something random. And I think our listeners on Goodreads who talked about their intentions and so many were about pick up the books on your shelf. I think of your people of the book. You know, that's a book you'd owned a couple times and really wanted to read. And so one of the books that I see every day, as soon as I get out of bed, is Beartown by Frederick Bachman. I've read a couple of his other novels. This one is part of a trilogy and Beartown is the first the other two are Us Against You and The Winners. And The Winners just came out and I have it, but I was like, start with number one because that's how I roll. <laughs> so, and then our fellow friend Karen recently picked it up and reported on Goodreads that she loved it. And I was like, okay, if Karen liked it, I'll like it. We have similar reading interests. And, you know, it's all about hockey. So that's also been the other thing is I said, you know, I'm not really into hockey. And she said the same thing on her review. And so I thought, okay, if she's not into hockey, sorry, hockey fans, and love the book, then I will too. And so it is, it's about a hockey town, a very small town. And hockey is life. Families and friendships develop around it. The town is kind of faltering, except for this, the fans that come and watch the hockey games. The coaches grew up playing hockey there. It's just all about hockey. What the book is really about, other than hockey, is how boys in particular, because it's a a male-only team, are reared to be the best. It is about winning. And all the costs that come along with that, you know, about is it good to be the best at hockey or to be a good person? Can you be both? Mm -hmm. (laughs) and also how we we I'm saying that because I grew up in a small town can really pinpoint people at a very young age you know if they go out and they show incredible athleticism then they're going to be the star athlete their whole life growing up and that from the outside that may look wonderful but there's a lot of pressure that can be attached to that and also you can kind of lose touch with reality because small towns Even though I always say they're a microcosm of the big world, they're also kind of their own little weird identity, you know, you kind of lose sense of reality a little bit. So this book is definitely about patriarchy. It's about locker room talk and trash talk. There's a violent act that takes place that then polarizes the community. People can't believe that it happened and take sides. One of the things I've always been fascinated by is groupthink. People get into a group situation and behave much differently than they might as an individual. And this book definitely takes on that idea. I do want to talk about one character who's Ramona, who owns the local bar, if you can imagine that. And she's basically the town therapist. And so I wanted to read this one little section. This is after this violent act has taken place. Someone has come into the bar. To order a drink and starts to talk to her about this incident. And she says, Is that why you're here? To talk about that? Sweet Jesus, you men, it's never your fault, is it? When are you going to admit that it isn't hockey that raises these boys? It's you lot. In every time and every place, I've come across men who blame their own stupidity on crap they themselves have invented. Religion causes wars. Guns kill people. It's all the same old bullshit. Woo, Ramona, tell it like it is, yeah. girlfriend. <laughs> I just loved her character. And she becomes a very important turning point in the novel. It's a long book, but I really enjoyed it. Frederick Bachman will make you cry, and he weaves a good tale, and it really doesn't matter if you like hockey or not. Yeah. <laughs> Again,
1: that's called Beartown. Town. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. I've heard nothing but excellent things about that. And that, yes, if you don't, you don't have to be in the hockey to really enjoy it. Yeah,
0: which I didn't believe. I was like, how can there be all these scenes with hockey and you don't, you know, but it really doesn't matter Mm -hmm. at all.
1: Yeah. I wonder if the audio would be good.
0: Oh, that's a good question. I'm looking
1: around for a new audio book.
0: Hey, if anyone out there has listened to it, let us know. I didn't. I purely just sat down with the novel and read it and really enjoyed it. Escaping into that world. It was very cold.
1: (laughs) And it was when we had our Arctic blast. So it was kind of perfect. Yeah. Yeah. We had like a, what, 24 hours of winter finally. Yes. No snow. Still no snow here. Chris isn't Uh, bitter. Well, I woke up when I let the dogs out, what, two mornings ago? I was like, wow, it smells like spring. Mm -hmm. Everything smelled different. And the birds sounded different. And supposedly the groundhog. Here in Connecticut predicted that there won't be six more weeks of winter. Mm-hmm. Even I believe if it. Yeah. The nationally recognized one said otherwise. Oh really? I didn't know we had our own. Yeah, I didn't know either. Laura told me about that. So mm-hmm. I believe them. But I had the exact same experience. I said to Jim, It smells like spring out yes. here. Yeah. yeah. Didn't it? The water smelled different. Like Yeah. You, yeah. That's mm-hmm. so
0: interesting. Well, I read one other book which is Why We Swim by Bonnie Tsoy. This is a book I bought from Savoy many years ago and I started it and I don't know why it just ended up back on my shelf and I didn't read it. And I love swimming. So why didn't I finish it? I don't know. Bonnie is a journalist. So it's essays, but it's also kind of memoir wrapped in there because she's an avid outdoor swimmer and grew up swimming. So she's asking the question why we swim. And then she's got these five thematic sections that she broke it down into survival, well-being, community, competition, and flow. She talks a lot about open water swimming. I ended up doing both reading of the book and listening to audio, which was great because she interviews people and goes to Scandinavia, and the pronunciations of the names were really difficult as I was reading it, but listening to it was really fun. Mm. It added to the story One of the things she points out is that we're the only land mammal that has to be taught how to swim. Really? Yeah. She said even bats. She's like, go online. I listened to a little chat with her, but also she says, go online, look at bats swimming, and you'll find a video of bats swimming.
1: Wasn't there a movement like in the 90s or something for women to give birth in pools?
0: Yeah, I'm not sure that that's gone away. (laughs) I have no idea.
1: Definitely when I
0: was, I mean, I had... Rachel in 91 and Jacob in 94, and it was definitely a thing. I did not do it, but, yeah. I mean, people did it at home in the bathtub,
1: you know, but you had to
0: find a birthing center with a pool.
1: Right. I mean, I always wondered, how does that work? Like, do they cut the umbilical cord underwater and the baby swims up? But apparently, if they need to be taught how to swim.
0: Yeah, I don't think there's much swimming involved for the baby. (laughs) I think it's more the comfort of the mother. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I guess the theory of, wow, well, we're digressing, but the amniotic sac
1: or something, but she does not talk about that in this book. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, yeah, okay. I- I'll just say, I was thinking too about pool cleanup and we could just stop there. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I thought the same thing, Chris, that's so interesting. Uh Yeah, we are one person. (laughs) Um, I really enjoyed it. I mean, if she definitely starts like the survival chapter, which is the first section, then there's chapters within the sections. I mean, she goes back to the ice age and really talks about water and the development of water. And then she talks about swimming pools and why early public pools were opened and Then open water swimming and people who get injured and come to swimming who are told, you know, you're never going to walk again and then are able to heal by kicking in water. And I see that a lot. I swim in a Y pole and people use the pole for very therapeutic reasons. And I love that, including me. It's good for my brain. So if you're looking for some nonfiction, if you love to swim, or even if you just want to understand the impact of water and the importance of water, I think this would be a good book for you. Why We Swim, Bonnie Soy. And the audio was great. She narrates. So, yeah.
1: So, Chris, did you go on any Biblio adventures? Well, not really, but I have some show and tell. Ooh. I actually made books. <gasps> what? <laughs> We had to do this as part of our class. We made three different styles of books. So the first is an accordion book, and I'm showing Emily. And we'll put a link to the show notes to a place where you can get instructions on how to do these books. So this accordion book, it was really fun to be making this because there's an accordion book that plays a role in the novel End Papers, um by jennifer kelly that i had just talked about so i was like oh look at that look at me making that i mean this is a really small example it's beautiful and then there was a stab bound book where you, some sewing is involved and that was a lot of fun and this paper my professor made she makes paper and then the last example was a little pamphlet a little sewn pamphlet Oh yeah, example so you know th- it's really kind of neat just to have the experience of making these little books their To have a little bit of connection to the books you're studying Mm. if you get confused doing this little stab book you stab holes in it and then you sew the holes in the certain pattern like if you get confused doing that you know imagine what has gone into book making over the centuries to figure this out and to make things that have good sturdy spines that can withstand a couple hundred readings having done that does that
0: make you have any feelings about when you see someone like me holding a paperback and bending it over in half and things like that no
1: i used to really have issues with people who crack spines but i don't anymore Mm -hmm. yeah i'm not really sure why i mean it could just be from the school experience of like you do not crack spines Mm -hmm. and you also i wanted my books to look nice but now I prefer them to look used. Yeah, like the, I've always been that way. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. And I don't tend to buy books that have a lot of highlighting or marginalia in them, but I don't mind if there's some, especially when I'm looking or you know, I'm looking at a book that I'm gonna buy and somebody's having like a real argument with the author or mm, you know, mm-hmm. I really appreciate that. Yeah. So sometimes I will buy a book that's marked up if that's happening, if there's a debate going on cuz i think that's fascinating. Yeah. I like books to to be lived in. Yeah, cool. So that was the extent of my biblio adventuring. <laughs> How about you? I started
0: watching Dear Edward streaming on Apple TV. That's the show based on the novel of the same name by Anne Napolitano. You know, there's a movement now with streaming I mean, listen to me, there's a movement, but I don't watch that much TV. But it seems to me they used to put a whole series out and now they're kind of holding episodes, right? Yeah. Like TV used to be, remember? Mm-hmm. We used to have to wait for the next show and then we used to to do things like watch commercials. Yeah. But, so this one just released on Friday, I think that was February 3rd, and they put out three episodes. There's going to be 10 total, but from here on out, there's one episode every Friday through March 24th. So I watched all three. Mm. I have mixed feelings about it. I mean, I think it's dangerous, right? We've talked about this so many times, to watch something when you loved the novel, Mm -hmm. which I did in this case. I'm hesitant to make an opinion. I will say that they've changed the story a lot. Like there are characters that weren't in the novel at all. So I think that's interesting, interesting choice. I like the acting a lot, but... The story itself hasn't
1: grabbed me yet. Okay. But I'm going to try again. I'll watch one more episode and decide. All right. (laughs) Yeah, I haven't gotten into a lot of adaptations lately either. There have been a couple that have just not grabbed me, Mm -hmm. and I've just kind of let them go. Yeah.
0: And, you know, I mean, I guess it's about being inspired by something, right? So they were inspired by that story, and so maybe the mistake is to watch it thinking this is just going to be the
1: novel told in pictures. Well, that's tricky. I think it, it depends on how it's presented. Mm-hmm. You know, to say this is an adaptation of X's novel, blah, 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 I think they set the expectation in some ways. Mm-hmm. But other times, if they say it's inspired by, that is a different story. Right. Right. I think
0: that's interesting. You should say that because I do think this one does say that in the credits, inspired by her novel. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I appreciate that a lot more because, I mean, I do appreciate film as its own art form. Mm-hmm. And I know they express story aspects and arcs in different ways than you can with writing. I, I get all that. Mm-hmm. but yeah. And this novel was inspired by a true story, which was about this lone survivor
0: of a plane crash. Mm-hmm. So she does the same thing with her novel, right? She got inspiration
1: from real life and
0: fictionalized it.
1: So. Mm-hmm. Interesting.
0: Yeah.
1: Hey, Chris, do you have any upcoming jaunts? I do. I have two on the calendar. Um, The first is February 16th, and these are both virtual. So February 16th, it is a book launch at the Center for Printing History and Culture in the UK for a book called Women Print, Design and Identities. It's a book that considers roles occupied by women in the design, authorship, production, distribution, and consumption of printed material. And that is a great definition for what book history is. So that is February 16th. I won't say what time it is because it's UK time. (laughs) And I'm hoping Google Calendar translated the time correctly because you do have to register. So that's the first one. And then on March 2nd, closer to home, but still also a virtual event, is um, through the Harriet Beecher Stowe House. They have an event called Understanding Catherine S. Day's Identity, Interpreting Women's Sexuality in Early 20th Century. And so um, Harriet Beecher Stowe House, right next door to that is the Catherine Day House, which has also been renovated, not renovated, um, conserved as part of the Harriet Beecher Stowe campus. And Catherine Day was a really important conservator in Hartford. She was one of the leaders of getting the Mark Twain House situated as a museum, from what I understand, and also the Hartford Children's Museum. She's also a painter. But this event has four case studies. She is one, Sarah Orrin Jewett is another one, and then two more, where they're going to be talking about like, how do you interpret people's sexualities for museum tours, when they may not have ever stated what their sexuality is, or maybe they did. And you know how to present them in a way that is respectful hmm so I'm looking forward to that and these are both virtual you said yeah both virtual so, so and you yeah. do need to register for both we'll put the links in the
0: show notes for those you will have time once this episode airs
1: so how about upcoming reads what's on your nightstand
0: Well, Aunt Ellen has started volunteering at a local Friends of the Library. So I got this beautiful little book in the mail yesterday. It's called Pie, A Global History by Janet Clarkson. And this is part of the Edible series, which I had never heard of. That is such
1: a cute little book. It is so
0: delightful. I can't wait to read it. I read about this Edible series once I received this and They all focus on one topic and have a lot of um, illustrations in them. Pie is one of my favorite things. So I'm really looking forward to reading this on Ellen. If you come across any more, let me know or just send them to me. This is published by Reaction Books, which is in England. In this particular one, they have already published Pancake, Pizza, Hamburger, Spices, Hot Dog, And there's a ton of forthcoming ones. Wow. I want them all.
1: Yeah, I definitely want the hot dog and the pizza.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, Ellen, you've heard it here that you should be on the lookout. (laughs) So that's one I'm going to dig into. And then the other, I've been carrying this literally in my tote bag for weeks now. It's called Hagitude, Reimagining the Second Half of Life by Sharon Blackie. This was one of Catherine May's book club picks. I didn't get to read it nor participate in book club, sadly, but I am still really interested in reading it. Cool cover. Yeah, very beautiful cover. Kind of reminds me a little bit of Alice Hoffman. Mm-hmm. You know, lots of nature and leaves and berries and a moth. A mysterious woman. Yeah,
1: What about you? I'll be reading The Warden by Anthony Trollope. And we mentioned in the past that this is going to be a buddy read I'm doing with Robin and then also Thomas. And we've invited other people to join us. If you're interested, the conversation will take place on Saturday, March 11th at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. So shoot us an email if you'd like to join in that reading. And then I also um, just picked up on the way here, The Lady with the Boar's Eye. Blanche Knopf, Literary Tastemaker Extraordinaire by Laura Claridge. And this was a biography, I think it's, it's, it's the first biography of her to come out. And it's a few years old. I've heard kind of mixed things about it. But I look forward to learning more about her. Yeah, I'll be interested to know how she helped with the business. Supposedly, they were engaged. He was, I think, 21, 22. She was 20 they're engaged. And she's like, yeah, you should start the business. And so supposedly, they were going to start it as equals. But then things got a little messy. But as uh, Thomas Mann says, like she was the heart and soul Mm. of the company. She's the one who designed the eye symbol the dog because they had eye dogs. So she designed that. uh, And she signed a lot of the big names I'll be interested to see how much I read of this. Oh, I'm also looking for research topics for my research paper, you know, so this is kind of, we'll see. Yeah, that'd be interesting. Yeah, really interesting. You know, she was such a big, important part of this business of publishing in the 20th century. So for her to kind of have been neglected is just really unfortunate. But I'm glad there's, you know, growing interest in her and other women who've been involved in publishing.
0: Yeah, for sure. In the Out Now category, woohoo! drumroll, The Wise Hours, A Journey into the Wild and Secret World of Owls by Miriam Darlington. This is one that I had on as my looking forward to when we met with Russell, and I still haven't gotten to it. But we got a finished copy in the mail. And that is our current month giveaway. If you're a patron of the book Cougars. Also out now is Out of Character by Jenna Miller, debut novelist. We interviewed Jenna on episode 174. Really fun book. Highly recommend. Also recommend you buy it. She's a debut novelist. Yep. And they need all the support they can get. Right.
1: And then End of Story by Kylie Scott. And coming up next is our conversation with John Valeri, our mystery man. Enjoy. Enjoy. Hey everybody! We are so excited to be back here today with our favorite book reviewer, literary critic, mystery man, John Valery. For those of you who are new, we call him our mystery man because he's a reviewer, and he used to kind of specialize in mystery and thrillers when he was writing for his Hartford Book Examiner. He also writes for Mystery Scene Magazine. Criminal Element, a lot of other great outlets, but he has really expanded his book world. Is that appropriate to say, John? Sure. I mean,
2: it's always been sort of expansive, but it seems I spend a lot of time talking about mysteries and thrillers. And so that still is sort of my thing.
1: Okay. On his YouTube channel, Central Booking, John has been interviewing all sorts of authors, a lot of mystery thriller authors, but also memoirists and people who've written about relationships with elephants true melissa (laughs) crandall right and then of course um he has been on our show this is his 10th appearance people whoa yeah it's like a significant anniversary here john is our most frequent guest take
2: that (laughs)
1: yeah well you know what talk you know not that
2: i say with all due love and respect
1: I mean, Shuli has dropped into third place. Um, For those of you who might be new listeners, Shuli Kaywood is an author we've had on four times. She's a childhood friend of Emily's, a friend of mine since starting this podcast. Russell of Ink and Paper Blog has now been on five times. Um, So, Shuli, if you're listening, you need to step it up, girl. Let's get going. Yeah. game on game on but yeah so john has been with us 9 times i won't list all the episodes we'll put those in the show notes if you want to click and listen because john always has great recommendations he's has a wonderful sense of humor and we kind of like him oh, so welcome back john
2: thanks so much for having me it's always such a pleasure to be here i cannot believe this is number 10 i did not realize that no, we're yes.
0: guilty that we don't have like some sort of medal or something. We're going to have to get on that.
2: Just being here is reward enough.
1: <laughs> oh, sweet talker.
2: <laughs> That's me.
1: <laughs> That's John. Yeah, John, this is your 10th appearance. He's usually been here just John. Last time he was here with Marsha Clark, a good friend of his and a writer and a lawyer that some of you may have heard of. But John is here today to tell us about four books he's looking forward to 2023.
2: All right. Well, thank you for having me here. It's February 1st today, hard to believe, but January was like an exceptional month for reading for me. I just, I loved it. And reviewing actually felt more like a privilege than a job, which is not always the case, just because my my life tends to be read, review, repeat endlessly. And I love it and I feel privileged to do it, but it is work, you know. But when you read exceptional books, I think you're really excited to tell other people about them. So I'm really excited to share a few of those with your listeners today. Uh, And my first is actually a bit of a cheat. Um, It's a December book, but it came out the week after Christmas. And basically, I say if it comes out after Christmas, it's like a New Year's book. So uh, I'm going with that. But it is Maureen Johnson's Nine Liars, which is a young adult mystery It's the fifth book in her Truly Devious series, but the second standalone. The first three were a trilogy that were sort of self-contained, and now she writes books that have standalone stories, but sort of character arcs um, that continue on from book to book. And this one was a lot of fun because Stevie Bell is a girl detective, sort of this generation's Nancy Drew, but the books are a little bit more progressive, inclusive, I would even say realistic. Uh, And she is a teen detective who struggles with anxiety um, and really finds a sense of self answering questions that other people have and being able to solve mysteries that nobody else has been able to put together. And so in this book, she travels to England where her boyfriend David is at university She's with a group of her friends and, you know, ostensibly it's a study abroad program, but really she's gone to visit David because they haven't seen each other in a little bit. And so she arrives and he decides to surprise her with a mystery, a cold case. Um, one of his friends at school, her aunt was a member of this group called The Nine. It was a traveling theater comedic group. And they were just really, really close knit, um, you know, performed together, lived together all throughout college. And then before graduation, they decided to have one more sort of blowout get-together party at one of the family's manor houses, because, of course, it's England, so you have your manor house mystery. And they decide that they're going to play, you know, a game of hide-and-seek in and outside of the house on a dark and stormy night. What could possibly go wrong? The weather's terrible. Eventually... You know, they call it off. Everybody decides to go back into the house and they realize that only seven of the nine have returned. And so the suspicion is maybe the other two. It's one guy and one girl. Perhaps they snuck off to have a little private time. But the next morning, they are both found dead in the woodshed, murdered by an axe. And the case is never solved and you know you're led to believe that maybe it was a stranger um but as stevie takes on the case she realizes that it was probably one of the seven left living who is responsible for that crime um so she's in england it's unfamiliar territory she's on the precipice of some really major decisions uh you know what is her relationship with david going to be like what is she going to do about college? It seems like all of her friends have everything figured out, and she just doesn't. So her anxiety is a bit through the roof. And then she's confronted with this case that she feels like might be the one that she can't solve. And if Stevie Bell can't solve the case, then who is she? Uh, so it's an incredible book. And what I love about Maureen Johnson is, you know, really wonderful mysteries. You're not going to be able to solve it before Stevie does. You just you can't. But they're also very inclusive. You know, you have straight characters, you have non-binary characters, white characters, black characters. There will be somebody that everybody will relate to, which I really appreciate um, about her books. And I will just say that I came to her fourth book first and loved it so much that I immediately said, "Deadlines be damned!" Went back back and read the initial trilogy one, two, three, back to back to back. And I haven't been able to do that kind of pleasure reading in years, but I was just so compelled to that I had to. Uh, So she, I think, will probably always be at the top of my list from now on. So Maureen Johnson, Nine Liars. It's a YA book, but doesn't matter if you'll, you're an adult, you will enjoy it too. That's what I say.
0: I'm going to interrupt real quick and also let listeners know these are all going to be in the show notes. So just relax and listen to John.
2: <laughs> yeah, he's so relaxing. I mean, did.
0: <laughs> well, I want to read that one. So already my TBR is in trouble. They're just, they're so much
2: fun and they really are devious, but they're clever and there's a lot of laughter and the characters are just very, you know, you say characters are real. What does that mean? But they're just, they're very dynamic and they really represent the world as we see it today. And that's not always the case. And I think particularly in adult fiction, you know, sometimes you read it and you say, okay, this is not the world that I confront outside my door. But in Maureen Johnson's books, it is the world that you confront outside of your door with that whole range of people, which is wonderful. So my next recommendation, and this is a January book, I'm going in chronological order, I think. See if I can handle that. Um, it is Stacy Willingham's All the Dangerous Things. This is her second book after last year's A Flicker in the Dark, which I found exceptional. And I think this book is even better. I don't even know how that's possible, but it's a terrific book. So the premise is we have a mother by the name of Isabel Drake, and her toddler son went missing about a year ago. Obviously, you know, very traumatic. The case has gone cold. Nobody really knows what happened. And people are starting to suspect that it may have been her or her husband. And so she's had to sort of embrace the true crime culture that we all live in to keep her son's case in the headlines because she she really doesn't want him to be forgotten, particularly because there have been no answers. Is he alive? Is he dead? We just don't know. Uh, so she's embraced that, you know, she's sort of a public speaker, she does podcasts and interviews. And so we are here, you know, with the one year marker of his disappearance, and things are finally starting to come together, she agrees to do a podcast with somebody that she comes to trust, and then she realizes that maybe he doesn't trust her. And if he doesn't trust her, should she trust herself? And the narrative alternates um, present events with past events. So you also see that she has sort of a tragic, traumatized childhood. And there are some questions, you know, from that period in her life that come to the forefront in contemporary day life. Uh, and the thing that I really found incredible about this book is you get the pieces To the puzzle. And every time you think that you've put the puzzle together and you have all the answers, she shuffles it around and it's a completely different picture. And by the end of the book, you know, you're dizzied and wowed and it's just a really great reading experience. And I think that, you know, her first two books have been absolutely phenomenal and it really makes me wonder what is she going to do next and how will she continue that caliber of excellence because they have both just been terrific reads so that was all the dangerous things by stacy willingham
1: hmm. wow i think it's kind of probably hard to put a new kind of twist on a missing child novel so yeah i mean
2: it's been done so often um but it does it feels really really fresh and there's just great character dynamics and she writes beautifully and she's sort of a master of not only plotting but twists i mean really every time i thought i had it figured out maybe i had a piece of it but there was a whole other picture that i was not seeing and when it comes together it's just like jaw-dropping
0: sounds really good and also kind of sad
2: (laughs) yeah a bit of that too um But definitely, you know, worth a read. She's definitely an author to to watch and continue watching. And so my next recommendation is actually by a Connecticut author, uh, Deborah Goodrich-Royce, who also was an actress. Um, Back in the day, she played the sister to Susan Lucci's Erica Kane on All My Children. And she's done, you know, a bunch of movies. And she's worked in the film world with, you know, editing and developing scripts. So she has a really awesome background that she brings to her books, but her third book came out in January. It is Reef Road, and I really do think it has the potential to be a breakout novel because, again, it's exceptional. Um, She melds a cold case, contemporary crimes, the COVID lockdown into one really unputdownable book, and it opens in May, I believe, of 2020. So, you know, 2020, I think, automatically brings back feelings within us. Um, But we're in Palm Beach, Florida, and a severed hand washes up against the shore. And that is the opening of the book. And then there's two women's lives who really intersect in very dramatic ways that tie into the discovery of this hand. One of the characters is a woman who... Last saw her husband and children walking toward the beach one day, and then they just, they don't come home. And she finds herself in sort of a disoriented state. She wakes up the next day. She reports them missing to the police. Um, and the question is, you know, what became of them? Where are they? And can she be trusted? And the other woman is a writer who is completely obsessed with a case, uh, from her mother's past. Her mother's childhood best friend was murdered, uh, brutally. And that case, Was never solved. And so it changed her mother's life. It changed her life because, you know, she was very much impacted by the way that her mother parented her in the aftermath of that. And so, you know, she finally wants to get to the truth um, of what happened to that poor girl. And until she does, I don't think she really feels like she can have any sense of closure um, or relief. And so these two women's lives become completely intertwined. And it's just really a terrific mystery that alternates between the two women's perspectives. And of course, it all comes together in shocking ways. Um, and it plays out against the COVID lockdown, which, again, I think is a very brave thing to do because so many authors have tried to avoid that in the attempt to to give the readers escapism. But I think that there's something to be said also for honoring you know, what people went through, what people have survived, or unfortunately, maybe not. And it adds a whole other element of tension to the book. And another interesting element to that is Deborah was actually inspired by a real case, her mother's best friend was murdered when she was a child. And so she knows, you know, what it's like to see that sort of generational trauma within family and friend groups. And so she brings that to the book as well. So it's just for her third novel, it's really, really exceptional. And I think that she's become very much a storyteller of distinction. I've enjoyed everything uh, that she's written. My wife Chelsea read her first book, Finding Mrs. Ford, and she loved it and she still talks about it. And you know, anybody who knows Chelsea knows that she's a much harsher critic than I am. So I always tell Deborah like that's the highest praise you're gonna get. I mean <laughs> I gravitate towards things I like but Chelsea will read anything and has no problem you know giving an honest opinion. Uh, but Deborah Goodrich-Royce's Reef Road. Really check it out. I think that you'll love it. And it's nice because she's she's a local connection here in Connecticut.
0: I and really so, enjoyed that book, John.
2: Good. I'm so glad. It was so different, right? But yeah, yeah. there's just so much at play. And I love any book where there's a writer character. Um, yeah. But again, it's one of those things you think maybe you know what's going on and then you realize, oh, probably not. Plot twist, jaw drop, pick it up off the floor until the <laughs> next <laughs> one. Uh, and i like to, she takes a couple years to write her books. Like she doesn't feel the pressure of it has to be a book of years. She really wants it to be the book that it needs to be. And none of her books are quite the same. I mean, yes, they are suspense stories, they are mysteries, but each one stands alone and sort of has its own essence and feel. And I I really love that about the book. And I'm so glad that you liked it as well, Emily.
0: And I think I heard that Finding Mrs. Ford won some award for like, Best Plot twist. Yes, it won like the
2: Zimmy Owens Award, I believe, for Best Plot twist. So she's good oh.
0: at those. If you like a book with one of those, you might check that book out too.
2: Yeah, yeah, they're all terrific. And um, her last book was Ruby Falls and very Hitchcockian and, and like film noir. So people who like film, I think would really find that book fun.
1: Well, I have to say I have a, a very intellectual uh, contribution to make to this conversation about Reef Road, that's the one with the really pretty cover, right? With the flower on it. It
2: has a beautiful cover. You're right. Like the whole package. I mean, that book is, it's a great book. It's, but you're right. Beautiful package. It has a
0: great cover, but then it's got that creepy little spider. Black.
2: Yes, there is that (laughs) spider. And you know, like, all right, it's not all beautiful. There's something underneath. And now I'm going to be a meme or a gif or something. John screaming, beautiful package. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And so my final recommendation for a January book is one that came out on January 31st. It is CJ Tudor's The Drift. I don't know if you've read CJ Tudor. She is from the UK and she debuted, I believe in 2018 with The Chalkman, which was just a huge book sold a bazillion copies, was published all over the world, and earned her comparisons to Stephen King very, very quickly. Uh, And I would say that really, I feel like she is my generation's Stephen King. She sort of mastered the same but different, you know, horror, but humanity, real-time horror, but also, you know, a hint of the supernatural. Maybe. Um, and I think that really she is one of those authors that people buy just because her name is on the cover, regardless of what the story is. But The Drift is actually a bit of a departure for her because it is not a contemporary novel. It's sort of dystopian. It's set in the near future, not too distant past. And basically, there is a virus that is ravaging the world's population, it's mutating faster than modern medicine can keep up with it, you know, if that sounds a little bit familiar, Um, but she actually conceptualized this in 2019 so before COVID happened. And it was a book that she didn't think that she was going to write just yet. Her publishers kept telling her, you know, this sounds great, but maybe it's a down the line book. And then she just got to a point where she had to write it. You know, it was the thing that was driving her, that was keeping her awake at night. And so she did. And so this book is out in the world now. And basically, like I said, there is a virus that is threatening humanity. And there are many who have perished, a few who have survived. And then the select group that have become what I will call the Whistlers and what she calls the Whistlers. So I'm not going to explain, you know, what that is, read the book and you'll find out. Um, But what I will say is she gives almost three locked room mysteries or even sort of escape room setups in this book, because it is three different narratives that alternate. So you have three main characters, who find themselves in very precarious situations and realize that not only their survival, but the survival of the people around them are dependent on strength, sacrifice, and the secrets that they each carry. And let me just give you the setup real quick. So one of the characters is on a coach or a bus that has gone off the road and is stuck in a snowdrift. There are 12 other people. Half of them are already dead. And, you know, the other six may very soon become so, but basically, how are they going to get out of this situation? And then we move on to a character who wakes up in a cable car that has come to a dramatic halt high above the snow, never made it where it was supposed to go. And so she and a group of people are stuck in this cable car in a storm. It's teetering over the snow. And, you know, are they going to survive the storm? Each other, the whistlers. And finally, we have a group of people at a place called The Retreat. And the retreat really seems like, you know, this idealized place where people are trying to get to to avoid the virus and the elements, but there are people there who again are finding themselves in a fight for survival. You know, their supplies are dwindling, uh their electricity is in and out, so there are threats both in the retreat and outside of the retreat, and all of these storylines come together but again in very surprising ways. Shocking ways, actually, I think I've said shocking for all of these books, but you know, you know that the stories are going to converge, but they again do happen in ways that you wouldn't necessarily expect. And it's interesting because it is a book that is very relevant to today's world. So any of us who are going through this, you know, you recognize the fear and the paranoia and the uncertainty, which is also a commonality. Um, with Reef Road, but it's an exceptional book. It is, like I said, a bit of a departure for CJ Tudor in that it's sort of a grander novel, a bit more futuristic, a bit more speculative. There are those elements of horror, but again, it's very much grounded in humanity. And if you've enjoyed her earlier works, you're going to love this one. And you're just, you're going to ask yourself how she was able to pull all those threads together. I'm still not sure how she did it. And I got to talk to her about it. I don't even know if she knows how she did it, but...
0: We're recording with John very early and I haven't had breakfast, so I'm super hungry. I don't know if that's why my mind is going in this direction. But as you were describing the book, I couldn't help but think of cannibalism.
2: You know, I mean, you do what you got to (laughs) do. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Some of those situations just sound like it might lead to that. Yeah. Absolutely.
2: but it's so interesting because I mean, it is a very wintry book. So to be reading it in winter, granted, it's been pretty mild in Connecticut, which I'm actually thankful for. but you just you feel it, you feel the cold, you feel the isolation. Uh, you feel for these people who are in this crazy situation and have to decide, who they can trust, if they can trust anybody, how they're gonna to work together. And so the drift is seems like a simple title because yes, yeah, no drift, but it's also so like a drift away from humanity. But can people work together to come back to humanity? So really stellar book. I really enjoyed it. Um it's a bit disturbing, but so am I. So you know,
1: no surprises there. <laughs> That sounds good.
2: Yeah, she's she's great. I mean, anything that she writes is great. Even if it's a departure, you can trust that if it's a CJ Tudor novel, it's going to be a very memorable novel. And it's going to be one of those things that you're just, you're not going to want to put down until the last page has been turned and you are, you're going to want, you know, your cup of coffee and maybe your cozy snacks and you'll feel a little bit better about things. And so I do have two books that I'm looking forward to for February as well. One is nonfiction, one is fiction. Um, but the first is actually a bit of a departure for me. But it's a book called A Mystery of Mysteries, The Death and Life of Edgar Allan Poe by Mark the DeWidziak. I hope I said that correctly. It's out February 14th on Valentine's Day. So there's your beating heart, you know, <laughs> under the floorboards. Um, but it's interesting because I've always been fascinated by Edgar Allan Poe. And we studied him when I was in high school, but I haven't really read much of him since then. And this book presents, again, dual storylines. So they intersect, you know, the mystery of his death in the three missing days and what was going on at that period in life with his earlier life and his work and how that may have played into the circumstances that ultimately had some consequence in his death, which, again, is still very much shrouded in mystery. So it's, it's a biography from what I can tell, uh, an inventory of his works, but also an examination of his death and of the various, you know, myths and theories that have surrounded that because really there have been no concrete answers as to what exactly killed him. Uh, So I'm really, you know, intrigued by the premise of this book. And I like too, that it's a biography, but it's not a doorstop. It's not one of those 400 page things. I actually think that it's less than 300 pages. Uh, so it's getting really great reviews. And it seems like it might be pretty readable and accessible. So I'm sort of looking forward to dipping my toes back into the world of Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, and then I actually snapped up one of his collections because I figured that might spur me on to go back and revisit some of the short stories and poems that he wrote. So that will be out February 14th. And then on February 21st, Walter Mosley, the great Walter Mosley has a new book coming out. It's called Every Man a King. It's the second book in the King Oliver series, but there's been a delay of, I think it's been about five years Hmm. since the last one. So people have really been waiting for this character's return. We know, you know, we've heard of Easy Rollins and his other great series characters, Um, but this is, Really interesting book. I just started it the other night. It's funny because uh, Mystery Scene, who I did write for, they ceased print publication, but they still have an active website, at least as of this time. And somebody, Terry over there, emailed me last week and said, I have a favor to ask of you. And I was like, OK, I'll do anything for Terry. She's done plenty of favors for me. And she said, well, you do an interview for us, for our website. And then she said I was Walter Mosley. And I'm like, OK, like, how do you say no to Walter Mosley? Yeah, you don't. So, No, I'm like, yes, you know, he's one of those authors that I've really wanted to explore more in depth, because I feel like I've read a lot more of his nonfiction than his fiction. And it's been incredible, particularly his books on craft and writing. So I said yes. And now I have a Zoom date with Walter Mosley, which is kind of cool. And they rushed me a copy of Every Man a King. And again, you know, you cannot put it down. I am like tearing through this book, because the plot is just you know, it just takes off like a rocket. But I also find myself pausing to really admire, you know, his writing, uh, the lyricism of his language at times, the similes, the beautiful descriptions. Um, so on on the one hand, I'm tearing through it, but then I'm also forcing myself to stop just to appreciate, you know, the mastery of his craft because he just writes so well and creates such a vivid, evocative world, but a really interesting premise. So the hero of the book is Joe King Oliver. Uh, He's a former NYPD cop who is now a private investigator. And so he actually, he is called in to do a favor for a rich and powerful friend. It's not something that he wants to do, but it's also something he feels like he cannot say no to. So he's actually asked to investigate the case of sort of an alt-right, you know, white nationalist, by the name of Alfred Xavier Quillier and, you know, Joe King Oliver is a black man. So being associated with a white nationalist in and of itself is a questionable thing, but again, he can't turn down, you know, this case. And so what he's asked to do is look into the fact that Quillier has been extradited from overseas, I believe in France, uh, to Rikers on accusations of murder and selling sensitive information to the Russians, but are the charges just? Did he actually commit these crimes? Uh, So really, it's an exploration of civil liberties and human rights. And it's not necessarily so much about this person's character, but whether or not he's been brought here legally or if it's on trumped up charges. Uh, So obviously, you know, emotions are very high. There are sort of moral and ethical dilemmas here, given the race issue. And it really pulls to the forefront some things that King Oliver, you know, Joe has been traumatized because he actually was falsely imprisoned at Rikers at one time. So having to go back into that situation really is triggering for him. So personal demons come to the forefront, even as he and his family face very deadly forces who do not want him to get to the heart of the question as to whether or not this white nationalist actually did what he's accused of doing. So I'm about halfway through, can't wait to finish it, really looking forward to talking to Walter Mosley. But I think that you know, this is great for people who are trying to get into his books because it's book two in a series, you know, so you don't have to feel like you have to go back and read, you know, 20 or 30 things. You can just catch right up. But again, a really engaging character, very timely themes. And like I said, the beauty of Walter Mosley's writing. So it's sort of a trifecta. I mean, how can you not win when presented with that? So those are two things that I'm very much looking forward to in February mm,
1: sounds good yeah. I want to ask a creepy favor like can I come over and stand off camera when you're talking with him
2: oh yeah <laughs> right or you know what We can just like zoom you in and put you off screen and no, you'll right. just
0: be there like, just, Ooh, like that's on creepy the you know on your zoom screen how you can see the number like it just says the number yeah. of participants those but just creep up. Like, <laughs> mostly be like why are there 12 participants on this call <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so fun.
1: oh yeah. Chris, wow. have you have you read him? I have. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, not a lot. Um I probably read more about him than have read him, but I, I've read a few, but it's been it's been a good 15 years probably. Yeah, he's
0: been well, I think when I
1: was yeah. first getting into mysteries, I tried to read right. at least one by everybody who was quote somebody, you know, mm-hmm. just to get a sense of their their writing. Very
2: cool. You gave me one of his books once actually. You gifted me a Walter Mosley. And I was like, all right, Chris, I think it was one of those ones who snagged me at BAA when I couldn't be there.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep.
2: And yeah, it had so- John in the title. So I was like, this is all kinds of winning.
1: <laughs> <laughs> really it did, John. It huh? did. Interesting. At
2: least that's my memory of it. But, but you know, my these days.
1: yeah oh, those were the days. Like half the time
2: I don't even know if John's my name. Like <laughs> answer to so many different things whatever
1: we prefer our mystery man mystery man (laughs) that works
2: for me i always a man of mystery you know
1: (laughs) well one thing we haven't talked about yet and this is a new development in John's life since we talked to him last but he is now the curator and caretaker of a little free library
2: that's right I am how
1: has it changed your life John
2: you know, it is ridiculous the amount of excitement I get out of the little free library. And it's it's been a rough winter because, you know, who the heck goes walking in winter? I mean, we were a little late to the party. Uh, so my wife got it for me for my 40th birthday, which was in June. She actually, um, you know, her dad is very crafty. And so she came up with the idea and she actually salvaged some, you know, leftover items from household renovations here, like roofing, shingles and siding so that this little free library would match our aesthetic, whatever that is. <laughs> um, and she had her dad build it. And so they presented it to me, you know, around my 40th birthday and it's just great, but it didn't go in for a couple more months because you got to dig a hole and pour cement. And I don't do any of those things. Like that's just not my area. So it's like, I didn't want to rush it because these are people doing me favors, <laughs> you know? Um, so it went up, I think in September and it took a little while for people to realize, but then people would stop at the box and I would like have to go out and like see if they took anything. And I would get very upset if people didn't take anything Um, or if, you know, they rifled through and left a mess and then I would have to like put the books back together in a certain order, you know, or make it more presentable but I've I've gotten a little bit better about that. I've sort of learned to, you know, let it go. Uh, But it's just, it's fun to see people taking books and to categorize what they're taking, because it's been, you know, mysteries, memoirs, children's books, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And sometimes I'll put a book in there that I think is going to fly out and it's there like a month later and I just don't understand. Um, But I had my first celebrity guest recently, at least, you know, that I know of, but Emily Fine of the Book Cougars was at my box slipping a John Connolly in there. Uh so you know, it's cool. You never know who's gonna show up. Sometimes it's during the day. Sometimes people will stop, you know, in their cars at night with their cell phone lights on, flashlights, and that's kind of fun. And then again, you know, I gotta put something respectable on and creep out to the box and see if they took anything. <laughs> But it's, you know, it's a lot of fun and I'm looking forward to spring and a little bit more foot traffic and then hopefully, you know, things will take off a bit, but probably gotten rid of about 15 or, or 20 books that have gone to nice homes. It is a curated, you know, collection that we have had some intake, which is nice. Chelsea jokes, she thought it was going to be export only. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> that's not really how uh, it works. So she wanted to police it. She's like, no, books just go out. Um, <laughs> But we're having fun. I like to take pictures when I add things for social media, or you know, the book box throughout the season. So in December there was a bit of snow, and I said I better hustle my butt out there before it melts. But yeah, it's nice. I haven't put up my little official placard yet. I have to do that because it's it says established 2022, and now it's 2023, and I still haven't hung the damn thing. (laughs)
1: It'll get there.
2: My my for a little free library. We have a couple in Connecticut. It's great, and just in Little Portland, there are some yeah. fancy. Yeah,
0: when I get go someplace, I either just try to sniff them out, or I get on the littlefreelibrary.org site there, they have a map and you can find them yes. if they're, you know, registered like yours. So it's super cool.
2: And like, I can now have something to do with some of these extra books. Cause if I love something, you know me, I get extra copies and I've reached the point where it's okay. You have to let some of them go maybe. <laughs> so now people are getting copies of my favorite books. Cause I probably don't need four or five or six of them.
0: That's I just great. keep a box in my car and like that's like, a, that's know. a great idea
2: like that's what I do now too sometimes for people's birthdays if I don't know what to do for you I'm going to buy copies of your books and put them in little free libraries like that's what I did for Marsha's birthday I just I was like I've sent you so much crap you know you don't need it you've just downsized right. a bit like what the <laughs> heck do you need some cheap gift from John for so I will buy five copies of your book and drop them off uh-huh. you know down Portland whatever but I think that's a fun thing to do because then it's you know the the author gets the sale and hopefully a reader to experience their book and maybe pass it on. So it's kind of like the gift that keeps giving. It does bring me a lot of joy.
1: That is a great idea. Yeah. Beautiful idea. idea. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, it's been so nice to have you on and, you know, we're hoping that we'll get you on for number 11, even after your friends with Walter Mosley.
2: Oh, I will always be available to the book cougars. It doesn't matter you know who I am, what rock I've crawled under. I appreciate you having me here. And it's always so much fun to talk mysteries with you both. And I love that you were both so well read. My TBR pile grows every time I listen to your episodes, every time I look at your social media, I was just looking at your readers, you know, top 10 or 11 books. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is terrible. I don't think I've read any of them slap me please
0: <laughs> there are 427 books in the reader top 10s list i mean that's amazing it's so cool to see but it's also like oh there's yes so you many want to read them books. all in one time yeah mm-hmm. yeah it's a nice yeah. problem to have though
1: it is indeed it indeed. is thanks for listening to the book cougars with chris Wallach and emily fine we'll be back again with another episode in two weeks Until then, come chat with us on social media, Goodreads, or email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. If you'd like to help support our podcast, please tell others about us, leave a review wherever you listen, and consider becoming a patron. Even a dollar a month is a big help. Learn more about that on our website, bookcougars.com, where you'll find the show notes for this and all of our past episodes. Thanks, everybody. This episode was edited by Pat Keo Sound Design.